Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Allison, and today we're bringing you the last installment in our series of year-end conversations about the state of politics and the presidency at the end of 2021. This time, we're focusing on Congress. Where did it succeed this year, and where did it not so much? What does party extremism in the Capitol mean for gridlock, and is the American system still the best means to govern our country? I'm turning over the reins this week to congressional reporter Mariana Sotomayor. Hello, Mariana. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm going to hand this off to you now fully. So thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. Happy to have two of my really good friends and posties to talk about all things Congress. And, you know, we currently have a president who has always been very involved in all things Capitol Hill. And Congress has definitely influenced Biden's decisions and the way that he has governed in the last year. So I wanted to bring in Tyler Pager. He is our White House reporter, also covered Biden with me on the campaign trail way back when. See you're in the office. Looks pretty nice in there. Yeah, it's wonderful to to be with you and talking Biden. We've been having this conversation for almost three years now. So great to great to record it and, and share with others. Yeah, it's kind of actually shocking that you said three years covering Biden. I can't believe 2019 was almost three years ago, but here we are. I also want to bring in my current work wife on Capitol Hill, Jackie Alimeni. She is our congressional correspondent and also the author of Early 202. We spend so many hours on the Hill together, including very late nights, just saying goodbye to House members in the last couple of hours for the rest of the year. So Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, wifey. Thank you for having me. I'm sitting in my bathroom recording this because my boyfriend is the loudest talker and it is the only quiet space in the house. Oh, I'm surprised your boyfriend is louder than Bertha, your internet Instagram famous dog who we all know and love. Yes, Bertha, my um, adult daughter dog is currently sleeping after a rowdy day at the S Street Dog Park. Oh my goodness. Well, make sure to follow her on Instagram and also Tyler and Jackie, two great people. But of course, we are here to talk about politics and the year that was both the White House and Capitol Hill. I think I want to start off talking about just looking at the Democratic Party, of course, Biden made a number of promises, very much pushed by different factions of the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill, on the campaign trail, to just try and finally address a number of policies and issues that Democrats have been wanting to see for a long time. But he really came in focused on COVID and really trying to make sure that a lot of Americans can get vaccinated once the vaccine was available. And it still continues to be something that the administration is constantly having to deal with. So, Tyler, I wanted to talk to you first, given that you have seen this from beginning to current, not really, unfortunately, an end to this pandemic. But how has the politics surrounding the coronavirus relief kind of changed since Biden came into office and kind of take us through to the decisions that they have to make now? Yeah, COVID has been 
the start, middle, and as you said, current. And it has not been easy. And, and now as we see the stop and starts of recovery, it has impacted everything from the way that we live our lives to the way that Biden is trying to prioritize legislation on Capitol Hill and, and the difficulties he has within his own party, but also with the Republican Party. Many of them continue to protest his every move on vaccine mandates and trying to push this pandemic behind us. Jackie, I wanted to turn to you because, you know, the American Rescue Plan was a huge deal. It was one of the first things straight out of the gate that Democrats could say that they were able to get done for Americans, to help Americans. But, you know, you talk to Democrats now and a lot of them privately and now publicly say we might have done a bad job of letting people know what's in this bill, of letting people understand that it really was Democrats who were trying to deliver on these promises. But that seems to have plagued them a little bit in terms of really trying to sell their message and also inform Americans about what they're trying to get done. This is such a prescient conversation to be having, Mariana. In my recent conversations just this week, as Democrats are hitting a wall when it comes to passing some of their other major priorities on Capitol Hill, primarily Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure plan, a lot of Democrats have started resorting to lamenting the poor messaging done on the American Rescue Plan, that the administration and Congress sort of misstepped in not trying to own it enough and talk about and tout the positive impact and benefits of the American Rescue Plan. And I think this is in part because they're potentially heading into the new year without anything else really substantial in hand uh, that includes voting rights and the BBB. But I also think it's in part because of what you just noted, which is that Republicans have been pretty shameless about trying to own parts of the COVID relief bill, even though they didn't support it. Not one Republican supported it, but we've still seen GOP lawmakers tout the benefits of it during town halls and and conversations with their constituents. But I also think to give Democrats a little bit of credit here, this was passed in the throes of a crisis and emergency. Joe Biden, remember when he took office, although this feels pretty surreal and long ago, the vaccine was novel. This was a new thing that was just taking place and they were running at 100 miles an hour trying to just land and get everything implemented. And I think that messaging was sort of an afterthought. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, Tyler, that you mentioned, and it just continues to plague this administration, is that some fringe Republicans, especially on the House side, which Jackie and I cover, just spew falsehoods about the vaccine, about the virus itself. How has the administration tried to combat a lot of that misinformation? Again, you could apply that to so many other policy issues, but it just continues to be one of the biggest problems that Democrats have to deal with in terms of pushing back and really trying to inform the public about what is real and what they should do, especially at a time like now when people are just over the pandemic and want to go back to having real life again. Yeah, look, that is the single biggest issue that the administration faces. And I was talking with a senior health official today who was lamenting, we have all the tools to fight this pandemic. It's the science worked. We delivered a vaccine that is effective. We know how to deal with this pandemic. It's our politics that are broken. You have people like Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin saying that mouthwash can kill the coronavirus. 
mouthwash can reduce viral replication, particularly on the first day that you get it. So why not gargle? Why not do these things? I mean, wh why deny you know, things that can be helpful. I mean, th this is what doesn't make sense. And then you have Listerine, the company responding to him on Twitter, saying this is not true. Like, you need to go get vaccinated. You need to follow public health advice, not just spew conspiracy theories about the pandemic. And I think there are a lot more people that, that are vaccinated now than were, you know, six or eight months ago. But still, there is a broad swath of the American public that is not vaccinated. And the administration has not found ways to be successful to get more people to get the shot. So, you know, Tyler, just hearing what you're saying about Republicans and how easily they have been able to spew a lot of misinformation. And you really did see a crop, especially on the House side, a crop of new freshmen on the Republican side that just really don't care about decorum, the rules. And it seems as if, and Jackie, I know you have been covering Republicans for several years now, and just based on your own reporting, can you tell us a little bit about what you think this means for the next year to come. Where is the Republican caucus right now in the House where they're being kind of overshadowed by a lot of these loud voices, but also trying to win back the majority during the midterm election? Yeah, Mariana, it is a very loaded, excellent question. And it's something you and I have both witnessed together. There are moments at least once a week where I think about covering 2015 and 2016 and the crop of 10 or 15, whatever it was, 12 different Republicans running for president and just how different the feel and the look and the tone of the party was back then compared to the people, the GOP conference that we deal with on an everyday basis. I think a clarifying moment for probably both of us was witnessing Marjorie Taylor Greene screaming at and accosting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I think it was really and encapsulated, I think, just what Congress, at least the House side, has devolved into. And that is an all-out partisan warfare where the loudest voices in the room, while they are not the majority or the base, claim to be the base and have signified that they have moved from the fringes, from the outsiders of the party into the hub and have the most important ear listening to them, which is former President Trump, who is by all means the de facto leader of the Republican Party. And this is something that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy grapples with every day. Just last week, you know, Mariana, you and I worked on a piece about McCarthy being more concerned with party infighting as it relates to keeping his position and party leadership next year, if the House GOP takes back the majority, then he was about some of the extremist Islamic rhetoric that we've heard from members in recent weeks. People like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who refer to some of the Islamic members on the Democratic side as part of the jihad squads, Ilhan Omar specifically. I did see Ilhan Omar the other day, and I said, oh, cute. The jihad squad decided to come in for work. It is rhetoric that is still shocking, but at this point, not surprising. And we have seen little and few Republicans come out to forcefully denounce that kind of language. And that is the question that you and I had been going around asking everyone. Is this what the party 
represents now. Right. And, uh, you know, another thing that we've been tracking this year, too, is just how Republicans have embraced the big lie following January 6th. And a lot of these members obviously being on Capitol Hill on that day. You and I have talked to Democrats on and off the Hill, and they're very much like, I don't know if I can work with Republican counterparts anymore because they're not in the same reality as we are in terms of the truth, in terms of the election. And it really has left a stain as we come up on the one-year anniversary of January 6th. And I think what's so remarkable about that is that Biden you know, ran his campaign on this idea of bringing Americans together, uniting the country, calling his campaign a battle for the soul of the nation, that he was not only trying to defeat Donald Trump, but extinguish Trumpism and what it stood for and represented from American politics and American life. And then he gets elected and we see January 6th. We've seen, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene kicked off committees. We've seen Paul Gosar censured and kicked off committees. Now we're seeing, you know, the same sort of thing play out with Lauren Boebert and, and the Islamophobic comments she has made. And it is just so antithetical to the vision of America that Biden ran on. And so I think that is a direct challenge as well to the first year of Biden and his term and his legacy is this promise he made to bring people together and all of the things that have happened that are direct rebuttal to that promise. Yeah. And, you know, Tyler, you actually bring up a good point. I actually want to ask you about this. We remember all the time on the campaign trail, Biden would say, to differentiate himself from other Democratic primary candidates, I'm the one who has the experiences and relationships in Washington. I have made so many deals with Republicans in the past, and I'm going to do it again. And, you know, we would bring up and many other reporters would say, well, it's a different day and age. And even a couple of years ago when you were vice president and definitely different from the times when you were in the Senate. And it seems like he may have finally realized that there are different atmospheres on both sides. Can you tell us a little bit of like when he had that epiphany, especially, you know, he was able to some credit where credit's due, obviously got that bipartisan infrastructure deal done. But even within his own party, there's still so many issues to pass the Democratic Priority Social Spending Plan, the Build Back Better Act. Right. I think that split screen that you just outlined is what has been one of the most remarkable things about this year. At the same time, we have... Republicans and Democrats fighting over an investigation into a deadly riot at the Citadel of Democracy. We have Republicans and Democrats working together to pass a historic bipartisan infrastructure bill. This is something that Trump wanted to pass. He wasn't able to do so. Biden said, the press won't believe me, but we're going to get this deal done. It fell apart. It came together. It fell apart. And finally, they got it done. And so it's just remarkable that we were able to have these things happening at the same time. And you're right. He had got a lot of criticism for saying Republicans will have an epiphany that once Trump is defeated, he will fall by the wayside and Republicans will denounce him. That has not happened. Republicans, for the most part, are scared of Trump, do not want him to engage in their primaries, and they are largely standing by him. Even those that denounced him somewhat after January 6th quickly corrected themselves. Senator Lindsey Graham jumps out as someone who has tried to toggle between both of these worlds of being critical of Trump, but then quickly coming back to defending him and, and recognizing that a future in the Republican Party is dependent on having a good relationship with the former president. But for Biden, you know, he too has tried to toggle between both of these, recognizing that 
the Republican Party is different than what he remembered when he was a senator cutting deals and, you know, eulogizing someone like former Senator Bob Dole, who he called a friend, and then also saying, but I can work with them, I can cut deals. And I think he's had to come to the realization that the Republican Party is dramatically different. I think the January 6th interaction was a clarifying moment for him and for many Democrats who were hopeful that the Republican Party would return to something more, quote unquote, normal, in which the Democrats were Republicans could work together. And I think the big question now is moving forward is they got this bipartisan deal done. Is that the end of cooperation across party lines on major pieces of legislation? We're now seeing Democrats move on to issues like the Build Back Better plan, voting rights. Those things are are unlikely to get any sort of Republican cooperation. And so I'm watching for how the president's words and rhetoric change about the opposing party as we move into a midterm year. Jackie, you've actually done some reporting on this recently, voting rights. It seems like there might be some momentum there. Could you bring us up to speed on that? And also just the fact that Democrats promise so much and they do see this as their only opportunity to get all of these things done. Do you think it's possible given how we've seen this legislative year turn out? I think if there's anyone that has their finger on the pulse of that answer um, at the post, it's probably you, but... I don't think so. We work as a team here. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to give you a little bit of context of where we're at right now, which is essentially that Senate Democrats have privately come to the conclusion that Build Back Better is not going to pass by their Christmas deadline and that they might have to go home empty-handed for the holiday and for recess and not having passed anything in quite some time and with little to talk about other than Senator Joe Manchin being an enormous roadblock to all of their hopes and dreams. And so chatter again perked up this week about voting rights, another priority that Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been promising that would be passed by the end of the year. We have heard numerous different deadlines repeated throughout the course of the year for getting this done, but the end of the year was always the hard and fast deadline because Democrats are concerned about getting voting rights through before redistricting happens. And it's still very much a long shot, according to staffers I've been in touch with that are involved with negotiations here. Basically, what they have communicated is that Joe Manchin is finally warming to some of the ideas, not around the filibuster, but about actually making changes to some of the rules to pass legislation through the Senate, and that voting rights would be probably the vehicle in which to do that. These conversations, though, have been going on for a while, and while Joe Manchin does seem more open than he previously has been, as one person said to me, you know, Joe Manchin has a reputation for being the boy who cried wolf. He's not even sure what he wants himself. He has not gotten to yes yet. And so it is possible that all of this collapses and Democrats go home with a massive messaging problem. But again, it has, the conversation has perked up and you've had people like Senator Mark Warner, one of the most moderate Democrats in the chamber, reiterate publicly this week that he'd support changing the chamber's rules. So we are tracking where that goes. You know, just talking to members, Democrats, Republicans, they talk about how there is a lack of decorum nowadays. Of course, they blame each other for that, which is 
pretty pessimistic about where we're going in terms of how these relationships can get better. But anything that you have seen on Capitol Hill just walking around, what is it like now that there is so much tension between Republicans and Democrats? It's definitely a novel and new and at least for me, an unexpected way in uh, an unexpected thing in the way lawmakers treat reporters and talk to us and deal with us. And then I think there is the way that lawmakers deal with each other now, not even just people in the other party. It's not just partisan food fighting, but it is publicly attacking and excoriating their own colleagues who are in their party who do not agree with them. It's leveling really loaded insults at them, like Marjorie Taylor Greene calling Nancy Mace pro, quote-unquote, pro-abortion because Nancy Mace was sexually assaulted when she was a teenager and because of that personal experience actually supports some carve-outs with rape and incest when it comes to abortions. I had one lawmaker who sort of shoved me and said, move, lady, when I was trying to talk to Chairman Benny Thompson about the January 6th committee and she was trying to make it through the metal detectors to get onto the chamber floor really loudly and aggressively. It is watching lawmakers get publicly and physically frustrated with just the Capitol Police for putting them through these mags and making sure that they are not carrying armed weapons onto the House floor. And it's lawmakers being frustrated with just the questions reporters are asked. I asked Scott Perry, were you one of the lawmakers who was texting with Mark Meadows on January 6th? It's a completely reasonable question. And he yelled at me, are you kidding me? Have a nice day. In a, in a pretty loud voice, another lawmaker told me when I asked him that question that that was the saddest question he'd ever heard. These are just just small snippets of how tense things have become on the Hill every day. I think the Democratic frustration and Democratic lack of decorum looks a little bit different than what we see sometimes from Republicans. That, I think, you know, can be told in the story of the way lawmakers and Senate Democrats are becoming more publicly frustrated with Joe Manchin. But Joe Manchin says expletives to reporters all the time when he doesn't agree with questions or he's exasperated by questions from reporters. But it certainly makes our day-to-day jobs more interesting, but also challenging. And it's not just Senate Democrats who are growing frustrated with Joe Manchin. I can uh, assure you the president himself and senior White House aides are also growing frustrated with Joe Manchin. And I think the constant negotiations, which are usual in Washington, there's always people trying to get something out of someone else to get a deal done, are really waning on people. And I think the pandemic fatigue and moving toward the holidays and plans being upended by the virus are all contributing to this air of uncertainty and grievance that I think are playing out, as Jackie just shared on Capitol Hill between reporters and lawmakers, but even in the caucus among lawmakers and and in the White House. And I think we're bound to see more of that as we head into the new year. What are moments in this past year where either Biden or his own staff have, you know, at times really pushed back on reporters? It's something that we face every day at the White House, publicly and privately. You've seen exasperation from Jen Psaki during the White House press briefing, whether it's questions uh, about testing. More, most recently, she got herself in a little bit of hot water when she kind of 
rhetorically asked, should we just send a test to every American when she was pressed about testing shortages around the country? And a lot of people watched that and was like, yes, that is exactly what you should be doing. But I think the repeated questions about testing have frustrated them. Questions about Joe Manchin are particularly frustrating to them. Questions about the filibuster, is Biden going to endorse the filibuster? Things that are in the news and we should be, as reporters, asking them, I think, part of the frustration they take out on us is internal frustration, right? Like, they want clarity from Joe Manchin. What does he want? What is he going to do? How can they get the deal done? They want to move forward on voting rights, but they know that, you know, even if Biden fully endorsed a change to the filibuster, there are a lot of senators that are not there with him yet. And I think, you know, questions about nominees, whether that's the Fed from certain economic-leaning outlets to ambassador appointments to, you know, staff turnover, those questions, I think they're not eager to discuss. But I do think that there is, there's more of a hint of aggression that we're hearing from White House aides and staffers because they are frustrated. They want to see Biden's agenda pushed over the finish line. They've been negotiating for months. You know, they want to take off time for the holidays just as much as the lawmakers do as well. And I think the continued stalling of priorities and the fact that the pandemic is still here, those two converging at the same time are quite frustrating to them. And we hear it in our interactions every day. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Jackie, looking at the year ahead, obviously it's a midterm election year. Republicans, it looks like, they are potentially going to be able to regain the majority over on the House side. What has their messaging been like so far, and how are Democrats hoping that they can counter it to actually keep the majority? Yeah, it's sort of crazy that we're already talking about midterms, but I think the year end is also sort of the dividing line for people to begin their re-election campaigns and to start owning that message. I think Republicans are still tailoring and working on their message, and that is part of the reason why Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been so preoccupied with the interparty fighting. His The line that he keeps repeating in GOP conference meetings, um, according to lawmakers who have sort of given readouts to Mariana and I, is that the more infighting we have, the more it, it takes away from criticizing Democrats. And so the feeling amongst Republicans was we're shooting ourselves in the foot here. You know, Democrats are struggling to pass through some of their biggest priorities. And instead of all talking about that, we're instead talking about Lauren Boebert making Islamophobic comments. One of the, you know, more galvanizing, I think, messages that we've seen emerge so far, though, for Republicans has been this topic of election fraud. You know, the big lie has become common parlance for a, a lot of Republicans who really flirt with even acknowledging to this day that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. They are trying to focus on inflation as well. We see that in a lot of the rhetorical gymnastics Republicans are playing at the moment. And, you know, I think Democrats on, on the other side of this, they are facing a historic disadvantage to Republicans. Many of them are retiring. So it's a matter, I think the feeling right now is 
are Republicans going to blow this historic advantage because of some of the infighting that we have seen play out this year? Because otherwise, I think a lot of strategists and and lawmakers feel like it might be a shoe in for them. One could argue one of the easiest things about running for president is you can make a lot of promises, but once you're president, you kind of have to own up to them. You have to deliver, and you're already seeing a lot of Democrats actually rating Biden and, and, and his presidency so far. He has pretty low approval ratings. They aren't trusting him as much on the economy and some issues, and like the coronavirus too, like they did earlier in the year. Going into this midterm election, how is he going to try and remind the American people that government is working for them? Look, it is a lot easier to run against something and run against someone else's record than have to defend your own. We saw Democrats benefit from that in 2018. We saw Biden benefit that from that when he ran for president. And now he's on the other side. He has a record that he needs to defend, and the Democrats running in tough midterm elections also have to defend that record as well. And I think there are things that they are excited about selling. There is the American Rescue Plan and the coronavirus recovery efforts and the vaccination campaign that they've run. There's the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and they hope coming soon, the Build Back Better agenda. And they will say this is, they being Democrats in the White House, that this is the most successful first year of a president in recent history, that he has been enormously successful at shepherding through legislation, through Congress that have improved the lives of the American people. And I know we keep talking and harping on the pandemic and so many of us are eager to move on, but the simple fact is the economy, our lives are not going to move on until the pandemic has somewhat receded. These are the challenges that the Democratic Party faces in the midterms. They are going to try to focus their message on, look at what we've accomplished, look how much we've pushed the country forward. But the Republicans have a message that they are coalescing around in saying that Afghanistan was the tipping point. The chaotic and deadly withdrawal from that country showed that Biden's promise of bringing competency to the White House was a false one, and that inflation and COVID are just other bullet points in that list. The, the, the Democrats have a tough challenge ahead of them. They are trying to remain optimistic that they can limit the losses in the House and hold on to their slim majority in the Senate. But it is a tough outlook for Democrats heading into this next year. They still need to get this Build Back Better bill through Congress and then come up with a messaging campaign that resonates with the American people and voters. And that's no easy task. Well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us and just letting us know everything that the White House is thinking. I'll see you in the new year, hopefully in the office. Thanks so much, Mariana. It's always great to be able to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. It's great to have talked to you and getting your perspective. Thank you, Mariana. Love you hosting. Have a great holiday. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Mariana Sotomayor. Can't wait to see what we cover next year on Capitol Hill and also at the White House. Thanks for listening to the last installment of our year-end roundtable conversations about the state of politics at the end of 2021. We hope you've enjoyed them. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.